don't know. Karen, you know that there's a number of pictures, logos, and one of them should be a picture of a camera. If yeah, but it says it's not supported on my browser. Oh, oh, oh. Well, I'm glad your audio's on. I, you can you can stay on that way, or you can click out and try to come in again. I don't, I don't know that it helped. I'm I'm so. Does she, does she have a camera? I don't know. Um, I might click out, um, and try again. My son's helping me, so. Okay. Okay. Just be patient. Okay. We're 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 going to go ahead, but. Okay. You you come Maybe in I and out. What do what you can. Okay. <laughs> Thank. You. Um, it's really good to see you guys. Um, I was especially glad to do Hamlet with you guys. It's it's a special play. I, most intellectuals shrink it and to me kill it. They they reduce it to psychological categories, and there's so much more going on in Hamlet, and I was so yeah. grateful to be able to do that with you guys. Um, um, but let, let me come back to it because we're gonna we're I'm gonna open just with a quick review of it. Let's start. Um, any any you started, Doctor? Yeah, any they're on. Any any prayer requests for tonight? No. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I'm going to thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you again, um, for the gift of yourself in Mass, and for your presence with us through the day, for all the ways you're with us. We are surrounded by goodness. We, we, we look at pains and crosses, medical problems and sufferings of loved ones is bad. Um, they're things we don't want. All of them you allow, um, they're part of our fall. It's the, the penalty for our disobedience. Um, but we know you. Um, there's nothing you allow that you don't finally allow to try to help us become better. Um, to learn to make a place for people. We, we would, without you, we would slide back so badly. We'd get comfortable, spoiled, arrogant, critical, self-righteous. We'd find faults everywhere. So however much these sufferings cost us, however unhappy they make us, strengthen all of us to know that you allow them so that we can grow closer to you and to each other, that we become better people. They humble us, um, teach us to turn to you, to not be so arrogant. So where there are sufferings um, and sorrows, um, let us not turn away from them or deny them or bury them or stuff them. Um, help us to give them a place, um, but strengthen us always to be glad. Whatever the suffering is, trusting in you, that's our faith, that there's some good going on, even if we don't see it. Um, the scripture is filled with episode after episode of your healing people who are blind. We don't think we need healing. Most, 
Most of us have good eyesight. Um, heal our blindness. All of us need to see better than we do. I personally am grateful for this work that we do together. I feel like our eyes are opening, all of us. We're learning to see better. It's true for me. I trust it's true for everybody. Help us to see that way um, through our faith, to know that you are doing something, to, to live that way in that belief, um, to not give in to what the world too often gives in, to a darkness and a despair. So where there are sufferings, let us sorrow, but hold on to a gladness, trusting in you, doing what we can to help. Um, I ask for a blessing on Heather and her family, particularly on her husband. Help him heal, please protect him, surround him with your protection. Watch over Stephanie um, and um, their new child. Protect him, the child. I'm surrounded with your protection. Let it grow healthy. Let all of them grow closer to you in their faith. Um, be with Melody and her family. Um, be with Connie. She's at Mass tonight in All Souls. She'll be here. It's like her to be there. Her, She carries loved ones in her all the time, those who suffer, those who have died. So... Be with her, let her know she has our prayers with her. Um, ask again for a special blessing on Kay and David's daughter, Denise. Watch over her. Um, help the doctors be responsive and do what they can. Um, and I ask that Kay's heart um, be quieted some. Be with Michael and his wife on their trip. Um, help Michael take a break from his notes once in a while on that drive. <laughs> enjoy what's around him with his wife. Um, we men, we men, need to be careful. So um, women do too. Women do too. I'm not gonna help us all in all of our efforts to put ourselves away, to give ourselves, so that whatever we do, we're bringing more of you with us. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord, amen. amen. Okay, just a couple of business matters and then we'll start with a lyric. Um, you know that some time ago when I came out of this um, difficult medical difficulty that I I wanted to approach all of this tentatively because I I, I was so weak I just it was a condition that I was not used to and um, but before all of this happened before I was hospitalized we'd been talking about getting back to a classroom and I think we need to return to that um, um, our plan then, my plan then, I talked with Father Flynn about it, was to go dual, to get back into a classroom physically, and um, but provide for a virtual option as well so that people like Melody, who's far away, could continue to stay with us. I'd be really sorry to lose her. She's just been a blessing, I think, for all of us. Or anybody else who wants to join the group, you know, online. 
So um, sometime in the next month, I'm going to try to pin things down with Father. And I'm going to be honest here for a moment. Um, one of my reasons for doing that is really selfish. It's because I want to get Michael in there so I can taste this meal that he talked so much about before. I want to, I want to see what kind of a cookie is. Um, when we get together, we're, we talked about having a potluck and a movie. I've got a movie on my mind. I don't want to give it away, but, but I would be so looking forward to just being physically present with everybody, having a meal and watching a movie and talking about things and then getting back into a classroom and still making an option for Zoom people, people who would join us online. So sometime in the next month, I'm not sure that we'll finish Lear. We may finish Lear first, but sometime in the next month, um, we should be planning to get into a classroom. Mary dropped out because um, she couldn't do virtual. I'm not sure that she'll return because I got an email from her, I think, and I think she's involved in a Bible study class. I'm Part of me wants to be careful about that. I, I, I don't want to disrupt that, and yet part of me would love to have her back in class just to make fun of her. But Robert. anyway, I, 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 um, at this point, I'm, it's in my mind. I'm going to talk with Father and see what we can do about getting back in a classroom, okay? Um, that's the only business matter that I can think of. We're going to start doing lyrics again. I talked about doing short lyrics, but I think I'm going to change that. Um, we're going to finish up Shakespeare in um, Lear and two other plays, Pericles and Winter's Tale. I, I believe that Winter's Tale is Shakespeare's greatest play. It doesn't have the titanic kind of intensity that the <coughs> tragedies have, like Lear. If you've, if you've been reading through Lear, you know how intense it is. It's a... It's, it's one of the plays that literary people call a romance. It belongs to the end of his life. It's not quite a comedy. It's, it's, it's got a, um, a dimension of pain that keeps people from wanting to call it comedy. It doesn't belong in the world of tragedy. I call those romances sacramental plays. And I think Winter's Tale is the best of those plays. Um, Pericles, um, Twelfth Night... The Tempest, Winter's Tale, those are his late plays, the plays he wrote at the end of his life. I think Winter's Tale is by far the greatest, and it's the one that most perfectly captures forgiveness, um, um, the Christian virtue in a way I myself have never experienced. It's it's an amazing play. Anyway, once we get through with those, I want to come back online to check with you guys. After Shakespeare, we go to, if those of you who want to continue, we go to the modern world. And my recommendation is that we go to Moby Dick and Scarlet Letter, Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. Both of those are Protestant. They're 19th century works. Both works grow out of, arise out of, a conflict between two worldviews in the 19th century. And I cannot put that strongly. We've already got signs of it here. Shakespeare's dealing with it. But in 19th century, that conflict is going to be full-blown. Moby Dick, Scarlet Letter are, I think, the most extraordinary works written out of this modern conflict. These two worldviews collide. One is modern scientific. <coughs> the other is religious. 
So a biblical, a scientific worldview come in to collision and produce these two works. I, the reason they're valuable in my mind, and I don't think most people see them this way, is I would, I would call them um, two writers exercising Protestant demons. I know that's going to sound overstated, but in in my mind, in Moby Dick, it's not overstated at all. Melville is exercising Protestant demons. Neither one of them can turn to Catholicism. They were too much a product of America, too much a product of the Protestant world, and both of them are pulling back the mask, pulling off the mask of the Protestant world and showing something else. They are prophetic, they are deeply American, they show us ourselves, they won't take us to Catholicism, but they show what's not good about the Protestant world. They're extraordinary works. They're just extraordinary works. Most people will not look at them that way. I think they're missing something. I I will look at them the way I've been looking at these other things. So um, there's that there's that to do. So if we do continue, we'll do Moby Dick and Scarlet Letter and Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, which is once again 19th century. It's Dostoevsky dealing with the same thing that's going on in the West, in Europe and in America, <coughs> except in Russia. He's going to show us that the same influence, these Western Enlightenment ideas, all a product of this new scientific revolution, are tearing Russia apart. So we're going to get a view of them at work, actually at work in Russia. So we're going to see those forces that most people don't see in the West at work. So even though he's focusing on Mother Russia, he's showing those influences that are coming from the West into this Russian world and um, dislocating it. Um, fragmenting it, throwing it open. So it's just another way of looking at those things in the modern world that are um, um, have, have formed the modern mind, modern culture, and are um, flying in the face of Christianity. They take their power from denying that the Christian world is real. So Brothers Karamazov is, is Dostoevsky's greatest work. We would take a, um, a look at those three works and we would be on the verge, in the middle of, the crisis defining the modern world. It, it's the crisis of faith. So we'd find out exactly where we are, what we're dealing with. We're already getting some touch of it here in Shakespeare, but in Moby Dick and Hawthorne and Dostoevsky, we look at that conflict as it's unfolding in nations. It's it's working out. It's affecting people. We, we'll see what it's doing. Anyway, that's where we'll go for those of you who want to continue with this, okay? Okay, um, for the lyric, I thought about doing shorter lyrics, going back, going back to some we've done. I've changed my mind. I don't know how much longer we're going to be doing this, and since I'm not sure how much longer we'll be together, I'm going to I'm going to do T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. I did it with the Francis group. It's a, it's a little bit long. It's a little bit like Auden's canonical. It's a, it's a longer um, poem. 
It consists of four parts. Eliot called it the four quartets. Its analog is music. We're to think of it as music or, or in terms of music. They're four quartets. They're relatively short. Burnt Norton, East Coker, Dry Sauvages, and Little Gidding. Burnt Coker, or sorry, Burnt Norton, East Coker, Dry Sauvages, and Little Gidding. Those are the four quartets. Each one of the quartets is broken down into parts. <coughs> so they're modeled on a quartet, on an orchestral piece of music. So different voices come in and to speak things. One of my reasons for wanting to do this is because it touches on what we're doing in Lear and what we did in Hamlet. One of the central motifs, one of the central concerns of Eliot in the, the four quartets is the still point. It's that idea we learned from Boethius. Remember he likened um, different ways of knowing to a circle. When you're on the circumference, you're caught up in fate or destiny. You're half blind. The closer you move to that center, the closer you move to God, the more you see. The farther away from that center, the more you're caught up with the ambition, the appetites, the drives of the world, the more blind you become. One of the central images of King Lear is the wheel. He take, Lear, Shakespeare takes that from Boethius. It's really, you guys are getting actually an amazing education here. You know, lots of, pe lots of people just do not know this stuff. Lots of people will read Shakespeare who will, have, who will not have heard of Boethius. Shakespeare could not have done his work without Boethius. I'm saying that really seriously. He's looked at as one of the, perhaps the greatest writer ever to write, the greatest poet. There's no way he could have done his work without Boethius, none. And that Wheel of Fortune is central to Lear. If you've been reading Lear closely, you'll keep finding images, references, allusions to that circle all the time. It was in, it was in Hamlet. Um, so... Um, one of the central images of T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets is the still point. He took that from Boethius. It's present in Shakespeare. We're going to come to it here. Okay. So instead of doing these short lyrics, I'm going to do Eliot's The Four Quartets. There are four of them. One of the central um, controlling, unifying images is the still point. Eliot writes four quartets. Each one of them refers to an actual historical place. There's a history behind each one of these places. Burnt Norton, Little Gidding, Dry Sauvages. Um, so his, um, Eliot is referring to an actual historical place. Um, he's dealing with the most important experiences of our human lives, but he's putting it in terms of this still point. And, and it's important to keep two things in mind. Eliot makes us aware that we carry the past with us. He's doing exactly what every good poet has done since we began our work together. Every serious poet carries the past forward, no matter how painful it is. The Iliad, the Odyssey, Virgil's Aeneid, Aeneas searching for a home. 
It doesn't matter how much pain, how much suffering exists in the past. It's our burden to carry that past forward and redeem it. That's what Christ did. He carried the whole of the ancient law. He carried the whole of our fall on his shoulders, took it to a cross. We're asked to do the same. We can't escape the past. We either get buried in it or we redeem it. And it's only in redeeming it that we come fully into the present to be with Christ. So Eliot is very aware of the past, the importance of memory, of carrying it forward. But he makes it clear that, that there's a danger. To live in the past means we miss Christ in the present. To live in the future in wishful thinking or dreams or visions is the opposite mistake. It keeps us from the present. It's only in the present, in the here and now, that we meet Christ. Because it's in that present that we're linked with Christ in his present. Because remember, in God's kingdom, there is no past or future. It's always present. You remember that? It means from Boethius. You all remember? Remember, it's only in the present moment that we're connected to some ongoing eternal present. So not before, not after, but in the present. That was one of the fundamental truths of the Odyssey. Odysseus had to carry Troy forward just as Aeneas did, but there was a danger in going back. Remember all the, all the, all the soldiers, particularly who lived in the memory of those wars, would not let go of their wounds. They were trapped in them. Helena, Helena wanted to take drugs. That was her way of escaping the past. Some people use alcohol. Lots of people use different things. We are called into the burden of the present moment to bring the past with us, not to let it overwhelm us to redeem it. So those are some of the important concerns that Eliot has in the four quartets. And remember, the most important thing is to see that they're all, they're all related to music, to order, to beauty, to harmony, because there's no way of thinking about God's present except as poetry. There is nothing in God's world that doesn't take the form of a harmony or a beauty or a music. <clears throat> so for all of these poets, one of the reasons they music is an underlying part of their poetry is because it's an attempt to hold on to that, those aspects of God's, God's kingdom. Okay, so Eliot will take up a lot of themes our body, the things that make us up, dirt, air, fire, water, the basic elements of our life, history, war, marriage. He will take up all of these things, but all of them will be moved, all of them will be put in the context of this still point moment and the music associated with it. You all, you all should have copies of it in the poetry section. If you, if you go to the poetry selection, You'll, you'll see the four copies of the quartet, so you should have them. I would ask that you just read them, and um, this is the one thing that I'd like you to hold on to very, very seriously. Um, I'll come to this in a second. Eliot, I, as I've told you before, 
Elliot, um, Elliot was a um, um, bright intellectual American. He left for England because he thought America was a dust bowl. It was just too culturally dried up. Um, he was one of the greatest intellectuals of the 20th century. He wrote books on poetry, um, all of them remarkable, another, a book on culture. Um, the intellectuals loved him until his conversion. In the middle of his life, he converted Christianity to the Catholic Anglican Church. And when he did, all of the intellectuals who loved him despised him. Um, they just could not make a place for his Christianity because, as you know, most intellectuals um, think Christianity belongs to an, an old world. Um, he received the Nobel Prize for Literature late in his life. He's one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. One of the most important things that I'd like everybody to hold on to when you think about Eliot is this. Eliot is a Christian, but he's right, just like Shakespeare, it's one of the reasons I'm glad to be doing this right now, just like Shakespeare in the Renaissance, exactly like Shakespeare. He's a Christian. Imagine what would happen to Eliot if he used a Christian language to speak to a people who hated Christianity. If he said, accept Christ as your Savior and you'll be saved, well, what would the response be on the part of most intellectuals? You guys are following, I hope, yeah? I mean, they would scorn him. And, I, and I, I, to be fair, I mean, I, I know that probably sounds bitter. I don't mean it that way. To be fair, if you thought about most intellectuals today who are agnostic or skeptical, they live in a world of reason. And, and according to those powers of reason, there's almost nothing in the world they can't accomplish. Why turn to God? Reason is so capable. Just follow me for a moment, even if you don't agree. These people are very, very capable. They think the state, if, it only, if we could only get rid of these notions with these efficient powers of reason and rationality, we could do so many things. We could get rid of crime. We could get rid of class differences. We'd have a great world. So why in the world would they listen to somebody who says, accept Christ as your Savior and you'll be okay? Is everybody following? That would not square with their whole sense of the world made available to them through their powers of reason. They're so competent. They're so capable. We are. We know that ourselves. I'm not speaking blindly. You guys know. There's almost nothing you can't do when you set out to do it. Are you following? So, so he's speaking to a non-Christian audience, just like Shakespeare. So what he has to do is use his powers of reason to speak to an audience who's, who vests itself in its powers of reason and who makes no place for Christianity. Now, how does he do that as a Christian? Okay. Now hold on to this because, God, this is so important. God, I wish I could stress. All of you think about that. This is extraordinary. I'm, I'm blown away by it. So if you can make statements that appeal to people whose powers of reason they hold above everything else, and more importantly, you can put it in the form of a music which relaxes their critical mind, what would their response be? 
Are you guys following? I think if maybe they would, you know, they would be affected by it unless they, unless they saw, unless they took a moment to see that the music that was touching them would was trying to communicate something that goes beyond reason. Yeah, but in, and one of the interesting things you couldn't tell reason itself is insufficient to do that. I'm just asking you guys to consider. When I start reading this poem, we're going to be reading it weekly. I'm going to take each of the four, four quartets and take a part each night. You're not going to hear anything intellectually in the arguments being made that's going to offend you. Nothing will be said about Christianity. And all of it will be put to music. It's a little bit like the overture in a symphony. You know, when you enter a, um, a, a hall for a symphonic performance, there's an overture. The purpose of that overture is to quiet your critical mind, to quiet you, to make you more receptive to what the music's going to do. If you're reading a poem and intellectually nothing's said to offend you and it's all put to music, what happens to your critical mind? Think about the power of that. Sorry. It relaxes. Yeah. Is everybody aware of what I'm saying? So here's Eliot. Probably one of the finest, probably, no, I'm going to say the most extraordinary poet of the 20th century, speaking to a non-Christian audience who's using all of his powers of reason and putting them to music. What's he doing? That's my question to you. The question that I put to you three weeks ago, four weeks ago when we did Hamlet is, is God present in this play? You know, it starts with a private revelation that was, that was not a small question for me. Is God present in Hamlet? If so, where? Here's Eliot writing as a Christian, deeply committed to a Christian view, speaking to a non-Christian audience. What's he doing? How do we understand? How do we feel? What feelings does he leave us with? What's he doing? Okay? Because he's not... A cavalier, innocent poet. Eliot is, if you've read it, you, I'm sure you haven't, but Eliot wrote lots of books on the poetic tradition, poets, specific poets, poetry. He carries the whole tradition of lyric poetry in him, wrote books on it. Here he's writing, but he's writing at a time that he knows is a crisis in Western civilization. A Christian way of looking at the world is passing we're heading into a very barbaric time. What do you do? What do you do? Okay. Bert Norton. It's written in 1936. Okay. And notice the combination of expository lines, intellectual lines that make statements, can combined with imagistic lines, lines that just describe images. He's going to begin with lines that make it sound like an argument. He's going to slip into descriptions that take us back to the garden, to that lost place in memory all of us have. We all long to go back to it. It's a part of our psyche. And he combines those two things. Why? Where are we going? Okay. Here's Bert Norton. Time present 
and time past are both perhaps present and time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take towards the door we never opened into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind, but to what purpose disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. Other echoes inhabit the garden. Shall we follow? Quick, said the bird, find them, find them. Round the corner, through the first gate, into our first world, shall we follow the deception of the thrush? Into our first world, there they were, dignified, invisible, moving without pressure over the dead leaves and the autumn heat through the vibrant air, and the bird called in response to the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery, and the unseen eye beam crossed, for the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. There they were as our guests, accepted and accepting, so we moved, and they, in a formal pattern, along the empty alley, into the box circle, to look down into the drained pool. Dry the pool, dry concrete, brown-edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight. And the lotus rose quietly, quietly. The surface glittered out of heart of light, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. God, I love this poem. I'm going to try to avoid commenting on the poems, which is going to be really hard for me, as, as you all know. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say anything, but I can't leave you guys here. Just a couple of things. Time present and time past are both perhaps present and time future. And time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. Is that clear? We either live in the past. I mean, the, the, past, the present moment is always fleeing into the past, right? The moment that right now when I say this word is already in the past. Whatever is to be is coming. Okay, but that's all there is, time. The past and the present in this fleet, or the future in this fleeting moment, yeah? If all time is eternally present, it's just coming here and gone, all time is unredeemable. There is no way to redeem time unless something comes in from outside of time. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. How many of us, how many of us go, oh, I wish I'd done that. I'm sorry I did that. I regret having done that. 
What a mistake it was to do that. Yeah? Is it, is it not clear to everybody that every one of us in those moments was trying to recover Eden to go back to the garden? Yeah? To recover a lost good? And by the way, what, what was the result of our efforts? Perfection the way it was in Eden? Is everybody following? Karen. Hi, I just saw you. Is Bob with you? No, Bob is not. Oh, I'm sorry. He's been sick. Is he all right? He's he's getting over COVID. Oh, wow. <laughs> but he's all right. Is he? He's, yeah. Then you yeah. tell that guy to get out here and join this class. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I told him that he should, and he was like, "I'm not tonight." Yeah, 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 yeah. Here, quickly. Um, Christ, watch over Karen and Bob, particularly Bob. Surround him with your protection. Seriously, um, protect him, please. Keep him safe. And um, um, equally importantly, um, help Karen's heart to quiet. Um, trust in you, no matter what happens, particularly involved, involving those we love. Um, help us all to trust in you, no matter what happens. Let a blessing be on both of them um, through this period, okay? Um, okay. Um, I forgot where I was. But, you know, here, you all, you know where I was, right? We all live, wait, so... If only I'd done this, I wish I could have done this if I'd done this. I mean, it just drives me nuts. All of us are trying to recover Eden. And it just keeps eluding us. No, wish I'd done better if I'd only done this. What's he say? What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. It's only in thought. We live in a fallen world. And yet we, we have this longing in us for this lost world right it's it's one of the deepest parts of our psyche we carry the garden in us all of suburbia is an attempt to recover the garden it's in one sense it's almost comic because it can't do the minute you move out of the city because you want to escape all the crime you think you'll be free of all the crime what happens when you create suburbia crime is all around you drugs adultery may not be the violence of the city but the crime's there is that not right Americans are famous. America, our founding here, when the Protestants came here, the Puritans, they wanted to found a new world, a new Eden. And look at the mess we're in right now. So Elliot is saying what might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possible only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Why can't we hold on to that eternal present in the present moment of each of our lives? Because we're in time and it's passing. Yeah? Is everybody following? So we're in a fall. Now, I, what I would ask everybody, when we get off the air, I'd like everybody to read Bert Norton and read it aloud to yourself or have somebody read it with you. Read it aloud. Because I hate, 
I hate tearing it up by explaining it like this. It needs to be read, and right now I'm butchering it. Um, I'm trying to help make sense of it. Notice what he does. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory. What do we do? Immediately, having gone through this line of thinking, we go back in memory to where? To the garden. And what do we find there? The first gate into our first world. The deception of the thrush, the thrush, the bird whose song calls us back to that natural world we once had. With our first parents, the dignity of it, we have a sense of them moving about. And notice that line, the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery. There's an unheard music everywhere. It's in our life. You can hear it underneath the horns honking and the bustle of a street. It's practically violated out, but it's there. The unheard music hidden in the shrubbery and the unseen eye beam crossed for the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. There's no way Adam and Eve could have lived in the garden without feeling an intentionality in everything. They beheld the flowers. It's as if the flowers were conscious of being beheld. Everything was intentional. The, Things were not divided into a subject-object, we-they. There was a oneness, a communion between things. Is that clear? It changed the way they experienced things. They could look at things and felt that they were a part of them. Things would feel like they were a part of humans. A communion was taking place. Is that clear? We live in a dichotomy. We objectify... We tend to objectify things. We turn things into objects to know them. What Eliot is describing in lines like that, they had the look of flowers that are looked at. Um, <laughs> in the Francis group, we did the Faulkner at some point, and there's a, a story called The Bear, in which this young boy hunts after a bear called Old Ben. Um, he reaches a point where he knows in order to see the bear, he has to put away his rifle, he has to put away his compass, he has to put away his watch. And it's only when he puts away all of his technological instruments that he can make his way through the woods, he's been taught by an Indian, and see the bear. And there's a moment when he opens on a clearing and he, young Ike, and the bear behold each other. It's a moment of beholding. There's no more predator and prey, hunter and hunted. It's not like it is for the hunters. The bear and the boy behold each other. It's, it's as if just for a moment they return to an identic moment. It's a moment we lost. It's the moment all of us long for. They look into the pool. <laughs> it's a swimming pool dry concrete. That pool is one of the images of suburbia attempting to recover the garden. Along the empty alley into the box circle to look down into the drained pool, dry the pool, dry concrete, brown edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight, and the lotus rose quietly, quietly, the surface glittered out of heart of light, and they were behind us reflecting the pool. It's like the parents 
our parents, you know, Adam and Eve, there. They are a part of our, Jung said, they are a part of our collective unconscious. They are there. They were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. That's that still point all of us long to recover. Okay, I don't want to say more than that. I, I hate, I don't like, I, I want the words to settle, but I think it's really important to, at this point to get some sense of what Eliot's doing so as you go through, it'll help. The, the, what I started to say a few minutes ago before I broke into this exposition is Eliot himself said that when you first read poetry, you can't understand it. But something emotionally is responsive to the poem so that in some ways you're catching something. It's like you understand through your emotions. You can't conceptually grasp it. When you read the four quartets, let it work on you. Don't get impatient because you can't immediately reduce it to an idea. That's the trouble. That's the trouble of the modern world. We want to reduce everything to ideas because according to Descartes, ideas are clear and distinct. I, I don't think there's a greater sickness in our world than that, these clear and distinct ideas, because it makes us feel like we have control or certainty. Or, but we don't. There's a lot in the world that's obscure. So if you're reading the poems and everything doesn't become clear, don't get frustrated. Just stay with it. It will clarify. I've just done a lot to, I hope, clear, clear up some of the, you know, what's got to be obscure in the opening lines, but it will all clear up in time. So just trust it. Just read it. Enjoy the music and enjoy what you can grasp. Your, your emotions are already grasping things before your mind does. You can trust me on that. Okay? David and Kay, are you with us? Karen, I don't, it sound, looks to me like you didn't get your um, video, but David and Kay, did we lose you? No. Okay, good. You don't want to. You don't want to visually show yourselves again. What to do? Oh, with you? Camera's on. Wow, there's Karen's no. Karen's there. There's. I see Karen. I don't. I don't see uh, David and Kay. Oh really? We're here. Funny, funny. <laughs> funny, huh? Yeah, and your camera's on. Yeah. yeah. Funny. And we see them. Oh, you do. <laughs> oh, something's wrong with me. You have a blind spot there, Doc. Yeah, yeah, not just now. <laughs> okay, um, let's, let's, oh, there you are. What happened? No, you, you guys are teasing. What did you just do? You're playing with my mind, David. I think it's the past catching up with you when they usually have their oh, camera off. This is a trouble when you teach people literature and then they do this to you. <laughs> Bob, I lost them too. They just popped back in for me. Oh, good. Okay. It's always good to see you. Um, okay. Very, very quickly. Any, um, you know, that one of the basic questions I asked you when we began Hamlet is, is there a God in the play Hamlet? Um, would, 
was there anybody for whom that question was not answered last week? I, I think we covered the place efficiently, but I, I want to allow a few minutes now in case we didn't. Is God at work in that play? Is Hamlet the same person at the end that he was in the beginning? He's given a quest by his father. He has to avenge his death. It was a regicide, a horrible act. And he says, avenge my death. The young son has to do it. It's like Orestes or you know, a number of great heroes. Orestes, um, Telemachus, Odysseus' son is facing a similar ordeal. That a son has to pick up the burden that he inherits from his father and see it through to its end. So one of the questions I asked at the beginning is, um, is the spirit in which Hamlet fulfills the quest at the end the same spirit in which he receives it from his father, that honor quest, or does it change? And is there a God? You know, I, th I hope you know, I mean, I, I think we've covered it pretty thoroughly. At least as I read the play, it's very much about a Protestant problem. Hamlet receives a divine revelation, so on the basis of that revelation, he has to act. But there's nothing in the um, natural order he can turn to. He can't say, I'm avenging my dad's death, his murder. People think he's nuts. A private revelation raises you above the natural order. In the Catholic Church, we have a help because we say um, we have to bring faith and reason together. The Protestant world says reason is corrupt. The natural order is corrupt. Um, we just lost Anne. <laughs> um, so what can he do? Um, but I want to I want to be sure before we before we turn from Hamlet to Lear, if everybody's clear in that, is Hamlet the same person at the end? He kills the king. The the quest is completed. Does he kill? Claudius in the same spirit in which his father wanted to kill him or have him killed at the beginning of the play? And is there a God? Because the problem that, that the play opens with is a horrible problem. You've got a man having a private revelation. It, it throws him off. It, it, it presents him with an impossible difficulty, a challenge. Um, does God handle it? it does the does the play give evidence that no matter what man does, no matter how bad the problem is, God handles it? So those are the two major questions. Is everybody clear on the questions that I asked? You guys go ahead. What, what was your response to the play? Had, had you read the play before? Did, did you read it differently now? How can you answer those? How do you answer those two questions? Karen, we lost you. Do you guys all have a picture of Karen? No, she's she's gone now. And and um, who else did we lose? And Anne, we lost. I, I just can't, I can't see Anne. Anne here. Oh, is Anne here? Okay. Yes. Anyway, what do um, how how do you guys what what's your response to those two questions? Anybody? Well, Bob, I, I, I certainly think that there, he is not the same man at the beginning of the play. And I struggled with his 
the to make sense of his actions after he gets back from England or from the England from from the the voyage. Right. And uh, because he knows that the king has put a price on his head and has has sent him off to be murdered. And, and when I uh, listened to how willingly he agreed to the uh, duel with Laertes proposed by the king, I was saying to myself, well, what's wrong with you, Hamlet? You know, you know there must be something behind the king's back, behind his motives. Uh, but in, in a way, he was, he agreed to it without a thought. And it was almost as if he uh, he was resigned to his destiny of of something. I'm not. Sure. I guess he, he he. I guess maybe there was some trust at that point that uh, there a means would be put before him to carry out the act of vengeance that his father asked him to do. Yeah, yeah. No, it's remember his words when Horatius says, um, "I'll." Offer stall, you know, put it off. He says, Not a wit, we defy augury. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man of aught he leaves knows, what is it to leave behind? Let be. Whatever will be, will be. The only, he's the, the most important phrase, I think, in all of that is the readiness is all. He just has to be ready whatever happens. It's as if he is willing to serve as an instrument no matter what happens. He, his trust is that great. Um, yeah, anybody? Cade, David, did you guys have a... Did you want to offer something on this? I think uh, when uh, Hamlet succeeds in uh, killing Claudius, he, in the beginning, when he heard the, when when he became a, uh, aware of the uh, that uh, killing of his father by his uncle. In the beginning, he was kind of wishy-washy, like uh, you can tell by his uh, statement of to be or not to be, that is the question. But then through the uh, play, he seems to become more clear to follow his uh, uh, honor code. And uh, uh, until he finally succeed in fulfilling his mission. So the, uh, probably the spirit, when he found out about the, about his father's murder by his uncle, he was uh, totally astonished. His spirit in that moment and at the end, when he succeeded avenging his father's death, 
the spirit, that spirit, Hamlet's spirit, was very much the same, I think. Even though in the interim, he seems to go through a lot of turmoil and uh, meandering, so to speak. So that is my impression. I don't know when, whether I'm in the right track or not. Yes. Um, anyway, what I'm, Anne, are you here? I've, you've got, I've got your circles up, but you're, there's no picture. Have you returned? Are you away? And Karen? I'm here. Oh, you are. Okay. Does everybody have a picture of Anne? Is it just me? No. We can, we can see her fine. You do. Funny. Yes. I have not. Oh, and there's Karen back. God, what goes on here? Karen's back. Yeah, right. Anybody else, Karen? You have any thoughts on this, or or Anne? Do you have any thoughts on whether Hamlet, the spirit in which he completes the quest, is the same or not? I think that in the beginning, it was that he was supposed to. Comp, a, it was a vengeance thing, and he wasn't real. I don't think he was real sure about it. And I think in the end, he knew what he needed to do. I think he was more at peace with what he needed to do. Uh, and including going to his death. Yep, yep, yep. No, I agree. I think the channel, well, here, let me go to the second question before I, I mean, offer my at least summary thoughts on this. Is there a God present in this universe? Because as you know, I've, I've told you this, if, unless you're critical students, you won't know this, but so many critics today look at this play as they look at Lear as a play affirming the meaninglessness, meaninglessness of life, that Hamlet gets his quest, um, he goes to his death at the end, the queen is killed, Laertes is killed. It all seems stupid. So to the modern mind, they look at it and think, how ridiculous, all these people dead? How meaningless. In, in fact, Hamlet's death seems an accident. You know, so they'll look at it and say, this all affirms a nihilistic view of life. There may be brief moments when Hamlet has a clarity, as he does when he says, readiness is all, but, but so often they just look at the end as meaningless. Is there a God in this world or not? How do we know? This cannot be speculation. I hope you know from me, I mean, you're, you're not going to get past me on this stuff. We, can't, we cannot make a conclusion that doesn't have the support of the text. We should be in the position of scientists here. We can't make a claim unless there's evidence of So, is there a God in this play or not? And if there is, what's the evidence of it? Mike or David, you have a thought on this? Well, there are examples of justice, certainly. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who conspired so completely against Hamlet throughout. 
that in the end their participation in the plot is their downfall. <laughs> right. Uh, All of the bad guys go down. Claudius goes down. Polonius is stupid. He goes down. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern go down. The queen is complicit. We've talked about the pathos of Ophelia's death. I mean, it's a sad, sad death. Um, in some ways, not deserved. Um, but my question is: Is there a god? Is there evidence of a god in this play? Is this a nihilistic play, or is a god at work? David, yeah, I'm not sure. No. I feel God is there and uh, aiding justice served. Particularly when uh, Hamlet asks uh, uh, his friend uh, uh, Horatio mm -hmm. yes. to uh, to stay alive. To keep living, yeah, because yeah. he wanted the world to know that is his desire to tell the world that God is still there. Yeah, yeah, some good is at work. Yeah. Yes. Any last thoughts, Michael? You look like you're troubling well, over something. Thinking of uh, the. the don't want to. I don't want to skip on past the uh, the clowns because I enjoyed their conversation so much. But that whole uh, that whole episode uh, taught us a lot about uh, the uh, the end result of of uh, worldly power and uh, and uh, the, the transitory nature of of all of our possessions and yep. wealth and you know so it, 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 as if to say that our uh, our true home is not here <laughs> yeah yes yeah yep yep let me just offer this one last thought because for me it's the one piece of definitive conclusive evidence the play you can almost look at the play as enclosed in two bookends You've got the private revelation in the beginning, you know, the ghost coming to Hamlet, which sets everything in motion. That sets the whole play, all the, all the episodes follow from that. Because it's only by virtue of that that Hamlet can see through things, and so can we, because nobody else in the play sees it. Everybody's blind to it. We've got a view to it. Hamlet has a view to it. Nobody else does. So the private revelation marks the play. It's what sets everything in motion. It's met on the backside by the channel crossing. And what, in a sense, this is really interesting, what, in a sense, is a private revelation. Hamlet has this misgiving in his heart. He goes down below on the basis of it, and, he, and it's real. It turns out to be true that this misgiving he had was actually valid. He opens the commission and sees he's being sent to his death. So he changes the names and closes it up, and Horatio says, how did you do that? Because right, he would have given it away. If he had opened it, they would have known they were exposed. Right? But he says, even in that was heaven ordinate. 
And it's on the basis of that that he knows God is working in his life. That moment, I'm claiming, radically changes his life. Up until that time, he can change nobody. He can't. He, he gives no evidence of trusting God. Show me a scene before that in which he trusts God. He doesn't. Um, the the mousetrap play convinces him of the king's guilt. He has no question about that. He's not wishy-washy at all. Once he sees the king act, he knows the king is guilty. He's going to kill him. In the next scene, the king's at king or the, at prayer, and it's only because he's at prayer that he spares him. He says, I'm not going to kill him now. But we know, we know, there should be no question in our mind. We know that he would kill him because in the very next scene, he runs Polonius through in the closet thinking it's the king. After the mousetrap play, Hamlet's decided he will kill the king. Or he wouldn't have killed Polonius, even though he does it by mistake. So he's, there's nothing wishy-washy about him after that moment. He's, he's committed. But who can he trust, and where does he trust God? I don't find any evidence. There's none. But at the channel crossing, he has this misgiving in his heart. What is that? I don't know what to call it except an indwelling. It's the spirit breathing inside a person. Reticent, quiet. Does anybody see the... Wait, I, let me, if I can, extrapolate for a minute. Aren't there moments when you guys are... I do it off in the shower. The shower is where I, where, where I meet light often. Don't you have moments in your life where you're doing something and suddenly a light comes to you? And you'll... Mm-hmm get an answer to a problem or a conclusion or a misstep. To, I mean, I write a good bit, so it's like a moment of clarity and, a, and the sentence will come to me. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? It's my thought. It's, it's nobody else's because it's an answer to the problem you know, I'm dealing with in my writing. But where does the light come from? Uh, Augustine called it illumination, those moments of illumination. When Hamlet's asleep, he has this misgiving. I don't know what that is if it's not an indwelling, if it's not the spirit rousing him. Goes down below and finds it's true. It's on the bed, and he says, and when Horatio says, how did you close it up again? He said, even there, heaven, even, he, he didn't have to say that. Even there, heaven is ordinate. He says that because he believes it. It's a confirmation that God's in his life. So the play begins with a private revelation and it ends. Now, my question is, what's the difference between those two revelations? One of them is the ghost of his father. The other, harder to describe, reticent, comes from within, but it's clearly true. And it's on the basis of that that he trusts God. So that when he goes into the fencing match at the end... He has that line, if it's going to be, it's not now. If it's now, it will not be until later. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. The readiness is all. I thought Anne's way of putting it earlier was right on. He's, he's offering up his life. Whatever happens will happen. He's trusting God. So I would say the spirit that Hamlet brings to the final scene is radically, radically different from what it was in the beginning. In the beginning, he's angry. He's a man of honor. He wants to kill Claudius. He set out to kill him. At the end, 
Um, he does. There's no, no words that gives any sense that he goes in there intending to kill the king. He's going to go in for a fencing match. He doesn't say, I'm gonna, this is a chance for me to kill the king. He doesn't say that. He says, the readiness is all. When he goes in, it's the queen saint, it's the king, it's been poisoned. And Laertes saying to him, the swords are poisoned. He turns to the king and he kills him in a spontaneous moment. The circumstances give it to him. Shakespeare is so subtle. There, there are just few writers who could do this. But I think we're seeing a man in a set of circumstances that he was not prepared to deal with, but that gives him, that puts on him this moment to do something. He's already dying. The sword wound poisoned him. Um, he kills the king spontaneously. So a real change has taken place from the beginning of the play to the end. It's very subtle, but it's very real. And it shows that there is a God working in the world. And it's, it's amazing that it brings a justice to all these things. And I would argue that um, if you look at the play Tragedies from the Ancient World, there's a strong sense of a fate guiding people, say the way there was for Oedipus or Orestes. In Hamlet, um, he's got a calling but everything he does, he does out of choices of his own. He acts spontaneously at the end. So I do not think it's a play affirming a nihilistic view of the world. This is not a meaningless universe. I thought Mike's way of putting it a while ago was really good. There's a justice going on in the graveyard scene, in the final scene. There's a sense in which there's an order to the world and things are working out. Um, would they have worked out without Hamlet? Not this way. But Hamlet had a major role to play because he had to fulfill a quest. He had to answer an injustice. But the way he does it is remarkable. I, I don't think he does it in the spirit of his father. It's radically changed. But he does do it. So what Shakespeare is giving us is a Christian tragedy. Um, Hamlet's a good man. He's a remarkable man. Um, and he's, he's just not an image of his father, I don't think, carrying on what his father wanted, even though he's answering his father's quest. But let me stop. Kay, did you have, go ahead, you have something. Uh, I feel, uh, I see God's hands working uh, by the uh, sequence of events that leads Hamlet be given the chance to avenge uh, his father's death and uh, kills Claudius. Without God's help, I don't think Hamlet would have been able to accomplish his task. Yeah. I see God's hands working. Yeah. Divine guidance. In yeah. The sequence of events leading up to him yeah. killing Claudius. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. The channel crossing is so subtle, but Hamlet's really clear. There's even there, even there, heaven's ordinate. God is, he sees God's hand at work in some ways. Um, he doesn't know how, he doesn't know what. What he says is the readiness is all. The, the way Anne put it earlier, that he's, whatever happens, he will give his life. Um, 
Just a great, great trust in that moment. Let me stop. We've got to start, Lear. Um, any, any thoughts or last questions on, on Hamlet? I have. It's a little bit off subject, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah, cool. You remember when I asked you that time uh, about Hamlet being the successor to the king, and you reminded me that that was in the English plays, not in this. So I did some research, and I found that even back in Hamlet's time, in Denmark, there was a council that would decide the next king, but it was almost always the son, the eldest son. Uh, in Denmark, way before a lot of other countries, it's the oldest boy or girl, but there also is a little committee that if they don't approve of someone who is in the order of succession's marriage, they get kicked out of uh, being in line. Yeah, that's um, sort of squares with it. There's a long tradition. Remember that the it's. I mean, Shakespeare's a, just. I, the, the more I know about him, the more I shake my head. I mean, there's very little more for me to do. You know that he took this from ancient histories, and that the real Hamlet lived sometime between I think the ninth and eleventh century. He got it from a book written in the twelve twelve hundreds. But he would have known about the succession and, you know, who was going to be king. And um, but here, so and he's aware of all those things. It's not like he's ignoring them. But here in Hamlet, it seems to me his real focus is on the private revelation, the nature of that, what it does to this young, this young boy, this young man, and and how he deals with it. The, the beauty of the play is he's. Here, here's the here's one of the reasons why I asked the question: Is God at work in the play? As Shakespeare presents it, he's presenting what, as I understand it, is a fundamental problem of our Christian faith. It's more particularly true of a Protestant because of what Luther did with private revelation, but it's true for all of us. Um, Catholics can have private revelations. How do you verify them? What do you do with them? You know, in the Catholic Church, the magisterium has to confirm them because people can go nuts. They can claim to have private revelations all the time and believe in them when they may be illusions. We just have no way of knowing. There's no way to confirm it. Remember in the pagan world, the taking of the auspices. That was the way something was confirmed. So even in the pagan world, they knew not to trust private revelations. Um, but Shakespeare takes what is a what is a the cause of a major breakdown in Christendom. It's the beginning of the shipwreck of Middle Ages. He takes that as one of the major problems of the Reformation, and he shows God answering it. That's what's amazing. You almost can't get a more difficult problem than a private revelation because if God's speaking, He's speaking. But how are we to know? Either a guy is really prescient, he sees, or he's nuts. We have no way of judging. It's just beyond our powers. So it's an extraordinary power of private revelation. And yet Shakespeare handles it deftly. He, he just is so good. He shows that no matter what man presents to God, God will bring some good out of it.
Tragedies, are, remember, I've, I made this argument. Tragedies are good. They're not bad, the way the modern mind thinks. Tragedies are good. Because in every, at least good tragedies, all injustices, all evils are answered. They're defeated. They're overcome in the name of some good. So all good tragedy affirms a good in the world. There is a God at work. Shakespeare is affirming that. What, what's amazing about him is he's, he has the courage to look at how awful things can be, what people can do to each other, and still bring it right. That's going to be even more true in Lear, because in King Lear, lots of people are going to die. And in a family, it, it's going to be a more horrific ending. And, and more critics are going to say, this is, this is an indication of Shakespeare's nihilism. He, he just, he believed that life was meaningless. Look at all these stupid deaths, all these people who died senselessly. Okay, um, let's go to Lear. Um, just a couple background things on Lear before we start. Remember, um, Shakespeare's concern is not with historical literalism. He stands with Boethius. He's not so concerned with the way historians are with exact details or exact sequences of events. That's not his concern. His concern is with a deeper truth. And so in Hamlet, for example, he took an actual prince who lived sometime in the 9th or 11th century and put him in the 16th century and had him enrolled in Wittenberg. Wittenberg's a Catholic school. It's probably where Rosencrantz and Guildenstern knew his, his fellow students. And Wittenberg was founded in 1502. Luther put up his theses in 1517. So I, th I think all of those are compelling reasons for thinking that what Shakespeare had on his mind is the importance of a private revelation. He's much more concerned about these deeper things and and their implications for us, how we see the world, what we see, whether we whether we have the courage to look at evil um, and the, a greater faith um, to see how God answers those evils or how human beings, what they have to go through themselves to answer it. I, I hope it's clear that God didn't do this by himself, that there's no way the ending could have taken place without Hamlet or Horatio. In King Lear, he's doing something similar. In King Lear, he's going back to the ninth century, nine centuries before Christ, um, to a king that um, lives during Old Testament biblical times. So one of the most important things that for us to keep in mind is he's going back nine centuries before Christianity. In Hamlet, he's 15 centuries after Christ. He's in the time of Luther at Wittenberg. In King Lear, he's going back nine centuries before Christ. Why did he go back to a period nine centuries before Christ? I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind before we, in, to just keep in mind when we wrestle with that question. One of them is Shakespeare's audience 
is largely now a disbelieving skeptical audience. The Protestant Reformation is underway. The Copernican Revolution, which is in some ways more important, is well underway. The Copernican Revolution left everybody questioning their faith. If the basis of their belief was wrong, they all believed in the Ptolemaic scheme of the universe. Is everybody following me? The Ptolemy believed that Earth was at the center of things. If the basis of their faith was on that view, and that view was proved to be wrong, what do they do with their faith? Right? So it's a time of tremendous skepticism. People are doubting everyone. They're particularly doubting the church because science seems to be able to determine things in a way the church didn't because the church went along with this. The church modeled itself on the Ptolemaic view of things. Is everybody following? So to follow the church seemed like stupidity. Remember, the, 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 the center of the church is not scientific information, it's Christ. Um, but, it's, but it still has to accord with the world. So Shakespeare is living at a, at a time when his audience is already intellectually skeptical. And I think it's safe to say that a large number of people in the audience um, would have been um, disbelieving, not believing. So he's dealing with this question, exactly the same question Eliot is. How do you speak, how do you present a play to a, um, an audience that no longer believes in Christ? That's one of the first things to just keep in mind. The second is this. You know that just a generation or two before, Henry VIII had wanted to produce an heir and couldn't and asked that the church approve a divorce with his wife. He blamed her. The church could not do it, would not do it, because that wasn't sufficient grounds. Henry separated, he, he married, he went on to marry six, he went on to marry six wives. Two of them he had executed. He executed two of them. And, and, and there's good evidence to suggest that he trumped up evidence to get rid of them, to save, to save his own face. He married six times to get an heir. And um, Shakespeare was born towards the end of that period. Henry, I can't remember when Henry died, 16 or um, 1545, 1550, somewhere in there. Shakespeare is born 30 years later, I think, something like that, 30, 40 years later. But Shakespeare is writing under a Tudor regime when Elizabeth, Henry's daughter, is queen. But he's experiencing the same totalitarian... Um, effects under which all people lived when Henry was king. When Henry was king and he couldn't get his way with the Pope, he separated from the church, made himself the sovereign head of the church. He was quite clear about this. He made himself the sovereign head of the church on matters of doctrine. So if he wanted to change a doctrine, a dogmatic truth, if you want to change a doctrine dealing with the nature of Christ, he could have done it. He would not have done that because temperamentally he really was Catholic, even though he turned away from the Catholic Church. So two things are happening now during Shakespeare's time. 
One is the Copernican Revolution. It's an intellectual scientific revolution. The other is a religious, the Reformation, and the other is political. But the political and religious are combined. Because when Henry separates from Rome, he declares himself and he brings the nation with him. Anybody who didn't sign the, the supremacy bill would have been treasonous. It would have been grounds for being put in the tower or executed. So Henry gave his um, leaving the Church of England the political power of a nation. So there was this accommodation towards the political world on the part of the English church. It caved. And you know that Thomas More lost his life in that. One of the one of the books, if we're together long enough, one of the books that I'd like to read with you, I'd like to watch the movie with you, um, A Man for All Seasons, and Thomas More. Um, the, the, the other book um, that Elliot wrote that I, if, if we get to, um, is the book called... Um, um, T.S. Eliot's it's about the murder in the cathedral, murder in the cathedral. it's about the assassination of Thomas Beckett it, it is a it is, it's, it's the only work I know on martyrdom that that goes into any depth but it's about the, the killing of Thomas Beckett so that the whole English church caves politically makes an accommodation with the world. That gives an ad, you can imagine, that gives an added weight to apostasies, betrayals, family conflicts, and investigations, intrigues, people turning, other people, father turning against son, son turning against father and mother. So Shakespeare has is living during that time. Okay? So the Copernican Revolution has taken place, the Reformation has taken place, the Reformation is giving a political force through what Henry did and Shakespeare's living under it. Okay. So it's a time of tremendous religious intellectual skepticism. And it's not just skepticism, I, I don't know what to call it, it's like an intellectual cowardice. People will not stand up because if they do, they risk their lives. Okay? So he, he's, he's, he's not just writing to an audience that's no longer Christian. He's writing to an audience that is partly Christian and afraid to be Christian. So what does a writer do? If he writes the truth, what's going to happen to him? He's going to be put in the tower or executed, the way Thomas More was. Is everybody following so he's, he's addressing a non-Christian audience, but it's, it's non-Christian in a, in a very complicated, confused way. Okay. The second thing that I want everybody to keep in mind as you go through um, Lear, and by the way, I hope everybody's seen the context. We live in America. America started out as a Christian country, a nation. City on a hill, God in the, written in the country, say prayers. Increasingly over the last hundred years, we have moved away from our Christian beginnings, and right now, Christians are under attack. Anybody who defends his faith is going to be called bigoted. 
anachronistic, out of touch, non-progressive, standing in the way, demonic, evil. If our country is going to move forward in a progressive line, we have to get rid of these superstitious people who call themselves Christian. They're not intellectual. By the way, I hope I hope our work together is... I don't know I want to put this. I hope everybody's sufficiently aware that there's an intellectual level of thinking going on here, that what's going on in our class is not just superstitious or dumb or that I... Because you know from the beginning I've tried to do everything I can to avoid being catechetical. I'm trying to present these works on their own terms, but I think there's a an extraordinarily of intellect an extraordinary level of intellectual truth in the work that we've been doing that's compatible with our faith. That what we're doing is not backward or stupid or uneducated or but we live at a time when people who are Christian are under attack. So that we're facing a situation very much like Shakespeare's. What do we do? And I say that believing in my heart of hearts that there may be times when we are called to a defense of that faith at risk of our jobs, at risk of our lives. And I say that, I say that very, very seriously um, from experience, um, not just intellectually. So the first is this historical background, okay? The second is that one of the major images, once again, in the play is Boethius' Wheel of Fortune. It's intellectual, it's a wheel that Shakespeare knew the, the educated people of audience would have known. They would have, most of them would have read Boethius. Um, there are constant allusions to that wheel in the play. Remember that people at the center are those who see more People on the surface are scattered. They're driven by their passions. They're blind to a lot. There's a lot they don't see. At the very end, when Lear um, is called to account, he will describe himself um, racked on a wheel of fire. It will be burning him. I mean, he, the pain will be... Ex I, I don't know of a pain in any other Shakespeare. Maybe Anthony and Cleopatra. I'm not aware of another tragic hero who suffers more pain than Lear. It's just excruciating. So those are the two, two sort of background things to keep in mind. Let me stop now before we turn to the play. I want to go to the first, the first and second acts just to get us going. Um, I put all of my materials online so you can go to the... Um, and by the way, I made some corrections. I deleted some and changed some. But <coughs> if you go to the Literature's Prophecy site, at the bottom of the content page, you'll find the, the two sites, the C site and the Francis site. And if you go to the Shakespeare folder, you'll, you'll see um, um, a number of files that, um, that should help. A couple of them are summaries. I would recommend just reading the summary of the play. Get it behind you, just so you know the play. And then take each of the classes. I think I've got four classes, one, two, three, four, and just you know follow them. It'll, they, they should help a little bit. But don't let them substitute for the play. You really, 
you really have to read the play. It's it's like Hamlet. It's an extraordinary play. It's just just very human, very rich. Let me stop. Any questions about the opening? My opening comments. Must not be doing something right here. It's such a pleasure to do this work with you guys. Karen, any comments or questions? Are you there? Karen, are you there? Nope. No. Okay, I was hoping to... Want to yeah, and disappear. Yeah. I don't see it. Yeah, just bubbles though. Yeah. Let's start. Um, one of the most important themes of Lear, um, probably the key, the main theme of the work, is. Um, the passing on of a life, an inheritance. And in that way, it's universal because every one of us is going to die. I think I mentioned this last week. And very often, um, the way we handle the passing on, on of our life matters. And so often it leaves problems in families. Um, we, I think most of us have heard nightmare stories about things that happen when... Um, wills are read and people feel um, unjustly treated or left out or abused or so um, Shakespeare's dealing with what what I would call a threshold moment the word is is liminal it's a liminal moment a line a liminal a threshold moment it's a it's a passage from one state to another the major question has to do with how Lear passes on his inheritance, his authority, and the consequences of what he does. Okay, So, in a sense, everything that happens after that moment reveals something he did not see in his life. It's a little bit like a Socratic moment in the cave. When you turn around in the cave and you move towards the opening, you do it because you look back and you see all these things that were wrong in your life. Is that clear? In a, in a sense, Lear and Gloucester are both blind. They think they see, their eyes are open, and yet what the play makes clear is that they didn't see at all, just at all. They're both rulers, and in one sense, I think we're, we're meant to see that they're ruling the fact that they had the authority that they did, the power that they did, blinded them. That power blinds. And the whole play is a revelation, an uncovering, an, unmask, an uncovering of those things that were buried, things they just didn't see. So in human terms, the play is very human. It has to do with passing on of who we are, and realizing in that moment that as we pass on, we learn something about ourselves that we didn't see before. Okay, that there's all this stuff in our life that we ignore, and then something happens to make it impossible to ignore it anymore. 
we have to confront some things. So it's a turning moment. It's a liminal, it's a threshold moment. Okay, that's the major, I think the major theme of the play. Act one, it begins. Kent, um, who is a lord, an attendant of Lear, says, I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall, Gloucester. It had always seemed to us, but in the division of the kingdom, it appears not which of the dukes he values most. For equalities are so weighed that curiosity in neither can make choice of either's moiety. (coughs) People know there's going to be a division, but they can't decide who's going to get more or less. So already people are concerned about who's going to get more or less. Let me stop. You know that I've said from the beginning, the opening lines of every Shakespeare play gives away the whole play. What's wrong with these openings line? What what should people be concerned with in the um, passing on of the torch of the, what's the word, the passing on of a torch, the, you know, the, 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 giving, passing on of an authority, the inheritance that's going to go from one line to the other. What should the, what is the concern here? What should the concern be? Is there anything to learn just from these opening lines? Two opening lines. I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall. Did always seem so to us, but now in the division of the kingdom, it appears not which of the dukes he values most. For equalities are so weighed that curiosity and neither can make choice of either. Some way to talk. Could you just? Could you just? Showing uh, King Lear's favoritism of one daughter over the other. Yeah, my question is, what do these people? What do these lines reveal about them? Should their concern be other than it is? What should they be concerned about? For equalities are so weighed that curiosity is neither can make choice of either's moiety. What's... Go ahead. At succession of a, of a monarch, the, the uh, concern is normally who will be the most capable ruler after, after, the, uh, after the power passes. Right. More, the, the, the whole discussion here is over who, uh, who got the bigger portion of the uh, kingdom. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, remember, it's really interesting when you think about when Solomon um, was given a choice of what he wanted from God. Do you remember what Solomon's choice was? We did this in Dante. Wisdom. Yeah, wisdom. 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 Okay, so again, Shakespeare's opening lines sort of give away a problem that the we become clear of people's orientations, where they are. And immediately, if we're reading closely, we're seeing something's wrong. The real concern is, as Mike, Michael put it, who's the, who's the best to rule? Who's the wisest? Who should rule? 
Um, who's the best ruler? Kent, is this not your son, my lord? Gloucester, his breeding, sir, hath been my charge. I have so often blushed to acknowledge him that I now am brazen to it. I cannot conceive you. Notice the word conceive. Sir, this young fellow's mother could whereupon she grew round wombed and had indeed, sir, a son for her cradle, ere she had a husband for her bed. Do you smell a fault? I cannot wish the fault undone, the issue of it being so proper. Um, Edmund is such a good-looking son. Gloucester, but I have a son, sir, by order of the law, some year elder than this who's yet no dear in my account, though this knave came something saucily to the world before he was sent for. <coughs> yet his mother was fair, there was good sport at his making, and the horse son must be acknowledged. Do you know this noble gentleman, Edmund? Edmund, no, my lord, my lord of Kent, remember him hereafter as my honorable friend, my service to your lordship. I must love you and sue to know you better, so I shall study deserving. I'll, I'll try to be worthy of your... Gloucester, he hath been out nine years, and away he shall again. So he's been away to school or somewhere. The king is coming, and you know the king is going to come now, and he's going to divide down his kingdom. But first, um, before we look to what Lear does... Um, what's your impression of Gloucester? He's a ruler, he's a duke, a lord. Characterize him as a man. What are you reading? The comment on here. I can see that. It's got to be good. Scott Criders. That's interesting. Scott Criders. Characterize Gloucester as a man. Well, he... Uh, it would not have been unusual for, for someone to have a child out of wedlock. Still isn't. But uh, here he is introducing his, his son to a duke and uh, to Kent. And... He's talking about how Edmund came to be, and he's speaking very flippantly about the whole uh, his mother uh, not not giving uh, any kind of uh, honor to his mother, uh, and yet he he does acknowledge that he loves Edmund, but uh, he's. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's not a proper way to introduce someone to yeah. do, introduce your son to yeah. to yeah. a good friend. Yeah. Earl or Kent is an earl, and um, Gloucester is a um, Gloucester is a I think a like a duke. Um, or he's he's an earl too. Both of them are earls. Anybody else on the on Gloucester? <clears throat> Anne, you have a thought? What's your impression of him? Your audio is not on, Anne. You might um He doesn't seem like he is a 
so much on the up and up. Usually you would expect them to uh, consider his legitimate son to be his heir. And doesn't seem to matter to him. He likes them both. Mm -hmm. But there again, he's a lot like Lear in that... As we're soon going to find out, he's deceived by his kids, too. He doesn't see clearly. Yeah. Um, I think Edmund will be dis... Well, um, Edmund won't receive what he believes is his dessert be, um, as a son. He's illegitimate. I think, I think Michael's... Um, use of the word flippancy or flippant, I can't remember what your word mm -hmm. was. He's too light, he's too, he's too arrogant, he's too light. I mean, um, whereupon she grew round wombed and had indeed sir a son for a cradle before she had a husband. Um, though his knave came something saucily to the world before he was set, yet was his mother fair, he enjoyed the woman in bed. I mean, it's just, um, there's no shame, no sense of propriety. He has no reason to be discreet or careful of his words. It's all as if nothing happened. He's too glib. He's too facetious. All of which speaks of an arrogance in him, a, a, a lightness. He's too light in dealing with what would have been a real matter um, because the legitimate son stood in the way of receiving things an illegitimate son would not. It's one of the reasons... It's one of the motives for the play taking the direction it. Edmund's going to do everything he can to get his his legitimate brother out of the way and get his father out of the way so he can take his place because as an illegitimate boy, he stands to get nothing. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm assuming that this would have spoken a lot to the English because that sort of thing happened often. You know that, particularly in the war between the Tudors, the war between the families, the privileged families at the time, um, that very often um, lords had illegitimate children who stood to receive nothing or could take the throne and make a claim. So the whole claim on authority rested on where you were in the family line. Um, the envies that it caused, the jealousies, the rival, the wars. So even though he's going back nine centuries before Christianity, and that is what, 25 centuries before their time, what's going on here speaks directly to so much of what's going on in Elizabeth's world the time Shakespeare wrote this. When the company comes in, Lear brings his family before him and asks them um, to declare their love because it will be on the basis of their declarations of love that he will divide his kingdom down. About line 47. Tell me, my daughters, since now we will divest us both of rule, interest of territory, cares of state, which of you shall we say doth love us most, that we our largest bounty may extend where nature, now hold on, because this is the other, along with um, succession, the passing on of power, the other great CERN is, is there anything in nature by which we can take our bearings in any of our, any of our actions? Is nature meaningless, 
or does nature speak here? Now remember, here's one of the problems. You know in, in Shakespeare's world, according to the rules of primogenitor, the oldest son stood to inherit the throne, right? What if the eldest son was an idiot, or let's say that inferior to the second son? The second son was more naturally gifted, more moderate, would have made a bitter king. What would have happened? By nature, he's out. So Lear is saying, Which of you shall say we doth love us most, that our largest bounty may extend, where nature doth with merit challenge? Goneril, speak. Goneril says, um, no less than life with grace, health, beauty, honor, as much as child e'er loved or father found, a love that maketh breath poor and speech unable. I can't find words to tell you how much I love you. Beyond all matter of so much I love you. Cordelia, she says aside, what shall Cordelia speak? Love and be silent. He says to Reagan, Reagan, what about you? Reagan says, only she comes too short, my sister, that I profess myself an enemy to all other j- joys which the most precious square of sense possesses and I find I am alone felicitate in your dear highness's love Cordelia again then poor Cordelia what's she going to say to compare to her sisters they both say they can't express how much love um, the second one says I love far more than my first I can't find the words to get to it poor Cordelia yet poor Cordelia and yet not so, since I am sure my love's more ponderous than my tongue. Lear, now our joy, although our last and least, to whose young love the vein, the vines of France and milk of Burgundy strive to be interest, what can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? If you express more love, you'll get more than they do. And moreover, what you say matters because the princes of two countries, of Burgundy and France, will be watching what you say because they're proposing marriage depending on the outcome of this because it'll make alliances with England. So both of them stand to gain something. Yeah? Is that clear? Is everybody clear politically what's shaping up at this moment? The vines of France and milk of Burgundy strive to be interest. What can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sister? Speak. Nothing, my lord. Nothing, nothing, nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond, no more nor less. How, how, Cordelia, mend your speech a little, lest you may mar your fortune. Good, my lord, you have begot me, bred me, loved me. I return those duties back as our right fit. Obey you, love you, and most honor you. Why have my sister's husbands, if they say they love you all? Haply, when I shall wed that Lord whose hand must take my plight, shall carry half my love with him, half my care and duty, sure I shall never marry like my sisters, to love my father all. But goes thy heart with his eye, my Lord. Um, Lear says, let it be so, thy truth by thy dower. He will um, um, disinherit her at this point. Kent will step up and say, Lear, stop. Kent will argue, and Lear will try to quiet him, and finally when he doesn't, 
he will, Lear will banish Kent and banish Cordelia. Um, and um, it will lead Kent to say about line 180, Fare thee well, king, says, Let thou wilt appear. Freedom live hence, and banishment is here. By committing that act, Lear has created a situation which only banishment or oppression will be, and it will only be outside his kingdom that real freedom will be found. So Kent is saying that what you've done is created a tyranny, and it's only outside of your kingdom that real free or real political rule will exist. So from Kent's perspective, what Lear has done is undermine his kingdom, cruelly cut at the heart of his kingdom. Okay? Now here's my question to end because our time is up. What's wrong with what Lear has done? He wasn't trying to do something wrong. He didn't set out to do something wrong. What was wrong with what he did? And why, why did it lead to the, to the condition that Kent is responding to when he says, freedom lives hence outside of our country and banishment is here. The gods to their dear shelter take thee maid that truly thinkest and hast most rightly said. He's asking that the gods protect Cordelia because she's been banished. One of the kings will turn her down because he's lost his the reward he thought he would gain from marrying her. The other king marries all the more attracted to her because she has nothing. So what have we learned from this opening scene about what Lear has done um, and political rule, if I can put it that way? Anne, what do you... Well, Lear clearly does not see and he has undermined uh, the, the political allegiance that he could have had uh, simply because she didn't get up there and uh, run off at the mouth. And it's funny because, you know, we all kind of bring our own experience. I have a sister I love dearly, but she is a drama queen. And on Facebook, when anyone in her family has a birthday, they go on and on and on and praise to the sky and all that, which I, that's just not me whatsoever. I would be a whole lot more Cordelia. And uh, because he was offended, he's really cutting his own throat. He's not really seeing it that way at this time, but but he is. Yeah. He's cutting out the one kid who really loves him. Yeah, and it's interesting. France is the one who says, I love you more by the plight that you're in. Burgundy pulls out mm -hmm. because he doesn't get any. But uh -huh. go back to Lear's words. Which of you, shall we say, doth love us most that we our largest bounty may extend? What's wrong with what Lear's doing? What's the fundamental issue, issue at, um, at, in um, what's the fundamental principle at issue here? What's he? There's a real violation. What? Well, he's certainly stir, stir, stirring them up to compete against each other. Yeah. 
Michael, he, he's making the most important decision, perhaps, of his of his reign about how to how to hand on his his uh, kingdom, and he's doing it based on uh, uh, who can flatter him the most. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's entirely based on his pride. Yeah. Ken, let me let me just put this shortly, and then I want to call it here. We, I just encourage everybody to keep reading it. It what happens after this, in a sense, un, I, as I've said, uncovers everything about Lear that he didn't see. Um, I, I I think Lear's an extraordinary figure, and the man that he becomes at the end. I mean, we've talked about tragic figures like Oedipus or Hamlet. Lear's going to go through probably the most painful change of any tragic hero that I know, but, and he will come out an, an extraordinary man, but here, um, let me just put the, I'll be pointed my question, can you buy love? Is love something that you can sell or buy or trade on? Remember, he's speaking to an, wait, by the way, this is, this is so powerful. He's dealing with a king that lived nine centuries before Christ. Could they have had any idea of what love would become when Christ entered the world? (coughs) No. Because when Christ entered the world, he brought a divine love man did not deserve. The ancient world would have known known love. They would have known mercy. Mercy is not a new thing with Christianity. Pagans could have shown mercy to their enemies. Could anyone have carried inside of his heart a divine love when a man did not deserve it? No. That didn't enter the world into Christ. I mean, that was an embodied, that's at the center of our faith. So he's dealing with a man that lives nine centuries before Christ, who, who really doesn't understand love the way Christ did, but Shakespeare's writing to an audience that does know Christ. Or these words would be pointless. Right? Can you sell? Can you buy? Can you trade on love? And that's what Lear wants to do. He wants... So, I mean, Mike's word was right on. He wants to. He wants his daughters to flatter her. But he wants to do it on the basis of a love. Tell me how much you... I mean, it's so deceptive. People could use the words and not mean it. Oh, I... You know, I love you more than anything. Cordelia is not going to give in to any of that. She says nothing. Lear says nothing will come from nothing. He's going to exile her, and Kent's going to say, "Stop. Be careful of your pride." So right here at the outset, Shakespeare is setting out a principle that would have that would have convicted probably every political figure in his country at the time. Henry VIII is dead. His heirs are living. Elizabeth is there. How much of anything did she do in love? Or how much did she operate within the framework that she inherited from her father? England's going to be racked by civil wars for the next century and a half. What what Henry started is going to play out for two centuries. There's going to be nothing but wars. 
So in one sense, Shakespeare is going back to something that went really amiss, went really wrong. Um, Lear's making the basis of succession buy-offs. Um, whoever can flatter me, whoever, whoever can declare the greatest love. What he's doing is reducing love to a thing to be used. And the cost of that, the cost of that is going to be here. Because what it's going to do is encourage his daughters, as somebody put it, to be rivals with each other. Not out of love, but out of envy, pride, to get more power, to have more authority. So what he did was set in motion nothing but problems in the way that he passed on his kingdom. So Shakespeare's raising, I mean, just as Hamlet did in another way, Shakespeare's raising this question, what's the relationship of love to a political, to political prudence, to political rule? You know, in Hamlet, he's dealing with the problem of um, a private revelation and its, its ties to political rule. What do you do? Here, he's dealing with the question of love and its relation to political rule. How, how does a ruler love? What does he do? Um, we're going to see the worst of it here. And let me bring it down. What does a parent do in a home when he passes, when he writes his will? And I mean, how does he be prudent as a ruler, as a parent, as a father, a mother to his family? Um, how does he... How does he act as a ruler, a political ruler, in love? So the question, once again, or the problem that Shakespeare's dealing with is pretty universal. Um, all of us, it has to do with problems that all of us have to deal with. Let me stop. Any, any questions about what Shakespeare's dealing with here at the outset of Lear? <coughs> Kay, did I chase David away? Audio's not on. Eight thirty. He uh, he joins the rosary. Oh, good for him. Good for him. So tell tell eight thirty. He leaves to join the rosary. Yeah. You know, tell him I'm sorry. I hope it didn't make him late. No questions? Any questions, you guys? Once again, Shakespeare's dealing with a question that goes directly to our faith, goes directly to what we do with our faith and our call to love. And it's, as you can imagine, it's not easy. It's not easy. So, okay, you guys all be safe. Um, we'll try to do Acts 1 and 2. Maybe one, two, and three, but at least the first part of the play, one and two for sure, and maybe three, when we meet next week. Okay? You guys all be safe. Keep us in your prayers, please. We keep you guys in our prayers. So I'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. What, what were you reading at the end? I was just looking at Scott Kreider's essay.
I think he's got a really fine mind, but I think what he does, what oh, I think is um, I'm doing Stop. 